Well, as I suggested, that's going to be the theme of our say this evening. We're, we're, this will be a, a final lesson tonight before we move on to the next big subject, which is the atonement. In this Doctrines of Grace series, we're overall paralleling the five points of Calvinism in, in contrast to the five points of Arminianism. And the five points of Calvinism, known by the acronym TULIP, we've covered the, the T, total depravity and total inability, for, for many weeks. And we just really finished wrapping up the U, which stands for unconditional election. And so next we're going to move on to the, the L in TULIP, which is limited atonement. That's coming up. But before we get there, I wanted to include one more lesson, really focused on applying what we've learned so far, especially concerning election. We've learned a lot and explored a lot about election in Scripture, the doctrine of election. But like I was saying in the prayer, continuing in the spirit of last Sunday's sermon, we want to make sure that we're not just learning these things, but also practicing these things. Like you said in Philippians 4, or like James 1 says, that we're not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. So there's this inherent temptation when you study theology and some doctrine like we're doing, which isn't done a lot these days. But you can confuse just learning with the goal. That your goal is just head knowledge or just learning. And one might say to himself, oh, okay, I've learned a lot about election and predestination. I think I've got it all figured out now. I've got all these verses down and I've learned a lot. Great. Success. Time to move on. But not so fast. It's true that if you've been with us, you, you have learned a lot. And in fact, I think we're, we're setting these issues at a greater depth than most Christians really get exposure to. And, and that is a good thing. You may have great knowledge now, and, and that's important. But be careful, as 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, that knowledge can puff up. Knowledge can make arrogant, but love edifies. And our ultimate goal in this study is not simply to be puffed up with a bunch of knowledge and doctrine, although that's essential. Uh, our greater goal is, is worship. To, to glorify God with our lives and all that we do. And we believe that right thinking leads to right living, that greater understanding of the truth leads to greater worship, which is why we place such a high premium on the truth, why we do study and contend for the truth. But we can't ever just leave it there. We understand that the goal of instruction is right living before God. And the end game really is worship in, in all its various forms to all that we learn. And we believe the more truth you know, the more you should be able to worship God, who is a God of truth. Listen to Colossians 1, 9 through 10. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's praying that they'd be full of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Why? He says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And that's our desire and our concern. We want to be filled with all of the knowledge of the truth. We, we don't want to cut that short at all, but understand our purpose that we too would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, and to bear fruit. I, I trust you know this, you understand this, that everything we learn is meant to impact our actual daily lives. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. And so tonight, what we're going to do with this lesson is just Take a little time, take, take a lesson to pause, reflect on what we've learned, and then flesh out how this should apply to our lives. And like I said before, primarily I have in mind here the doctrine of election. All that we've learned about 
election predestination and all that stuff we've we've covered that for months we're we're not going to recover that now but just now what that means for for life election believe it or not is an extremely practical truth or doctrine in scripture election refers to the act of god before the foundation of the world whereby he chooses some for salvation and we've learned through a course of study that god's choice is unconditional Hence the U in the TULIP acronym, Unconditional Election. God works all things after the counsel of his will. But this truth is revealed in scripture for many important and practical reasons. And so I want to share some of those with you tonight, which effectively serve as applications of the truths of election. That's that's what we're doing tonight. That's our goal for tonight. And we'll we'll look at six total. You have them in your notes, or at least uh, you have notes before you. And I'll help you fill those in if you're a note taker. So let's do this. The truth of election produces the following. These these application points. Ways to to live this out. Number one. Deeper worship. Like I already was talking about. Deeper worship. Any truth in scripture that makes man smaller and God bigger. Is going to result among believers in, in deeper worship. And rightly so. What is worship? In essence, it's the act of ascribing worth to God, making much of God. It's rendering him the praise that is due his great name. What makes God worthy of all this praise, all this, all this attention, all this worship? What makes him worthy? Well, first, there's God's inherent worth, just simply who he is, his person, his attributes. The, the fact that he's the infinite, matchless, supreme God of the universe, perfect in love and wisdom and knowledge and power and so forth, makes him worthy, inherently worthy of worship. But God is also to be exalted for his works, his person and his works. And in scripture, there are two primary works that serve as as the reason we we worship him or, or further reasons. One, creation. Two, redemption. I mean, there are more, but these are, I'm giving you the two basic categories, creation and redemption. Obviously, throughout Scripture, you you know the theme, God created all things, and for that, he's to be exalted. He's the maker of everything, creator of heaven and earth. Just look, although we still can't see that many stars here in California, but look up in the sky, and and knowing what we know, how how vast the universe is, how many stars there are, it's mind-boggling to think, what kind of a being just creates this by speaking? And why did God make the universe so big? Wouldn't, wouldn't like 100,000 stars have been enough? Like, seems like that's fine. Why so many? Probably to teach us that he's a little something like that. Thinking of God's power, his scope, his size. He's a little bit like that. Infinite in majesty. Anyway, that is meant to evoke praise, worth. That, that being is worthy. Far worthier than, than I. But there's a second work in scripture given consistently to evoke our praise. And it's actually given, in, in a sense, as greater than his first work, in the, in the sense that it leads to greater praise in the work of redemption or salvation or recreation, new creation. It's actually posed in Scripture as God's ultimate work, his greatest crowning achievement is salvation. And so all aspects of our salvation should lead to the greater praise of God which is only natural. I mean, imagine 
you fall off the side of a cruise ship and you can't really swim, so you're drowning, but a good Samaritan jumps in and rescues you and saves you. Would you be thankful? (laughs) You would be super thankful. Or what if it was your child that fell into the water and that was rescued? I mean, you could never thank that person enough. You would go to great ends to express your, your thanks, your honor, your, your right praise for the person and, and saving you, saving your child, appropriately so. So just how much more worthy is, is God of our thanks, our honor, our praise for saving us eternally? He saved us from eternal death, which we actually deserved because of our sins. So just, just think about that. Do you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God, through Christ, saved you from eternal peril? He, he rescued you. I mean, if you really believe that, that should make you thankful and uh, evoke real praise from you, not just your lips, but your lives. And some cultures around the world have this concept of a life debt, where if someone saves your life, you now your whole life is devoted to serving them. And we, we can't repay God, but... As he redeemed us and purchased us, in an appropriate sense, we now live to serve him because we love him, because he saved us. Now, I trust trust you know all this, but understand that in Scripture, you see oftentimes the truth of election directly tied to this response of worship. I mean, what is election, after all, but the starting point of our salvation? It's God's, it's the beginning of of that plan of redemption and all aspects of our salvation should evoke praise. And election's no different. Let's turn to Ephesians 1. Grab a Bible or a pew Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll find, I think all of the verses in your notes tonight, we've already studied in great depth to, to extract the, the, the truth out of them, the truth content of election. We're going to read a lot of them again and just focus on what we... In, in a sense, skipped over, and that's the, the, the so what. Okay, God called us before the foundation of the world and chose us. So what? We're going to find out. Ephesians 1, look at verse 3. These, these should come back to you. Where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And again, look, jump down to verse 11. In the middle, it says, that we've been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end, to what end? To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Read these verses many times, but notice notice how Paul starts. Blessed be God. This, This whole section which we often come to for truth on election and predestination. His whole purpose, though, was just praise. He was blessing God. Why? Because God has blessed us eternally by calling us, by choosing us. To what end did God predestine us in love, in Christ, before the foundation of the world? To what end? 
He says, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In fact, three times in this passage, 3 through 14, three times that's a refrain showing the triune purpose of God in, in choosing us and saving us. Father, Son, Spirit, all participating in our redemption. And to what end? Each time, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace, the ultimate purpose for salvation. God saved us and elected us for his own glory. We become trophies of his sovereign grace. And what do trophies do? Trophies glorify the one who earned them. And God purchased us through the death of his son. And by a sovereign choice, he included us in that ransom, basically made us trophies of his grace that we would sing his praises forever for that sovereign grace. And that's what we should do. Flip over now, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now you're going to look at all the verses I gave in your notes, but uh, a few stand out for the sake of time. But flip backwards to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll read 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But verse 30, but by his doing, remember that verse, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The basic point here is we, we can't, nor should we, nor, nor do we, thank ourselves for our salvation or praise ourselves. I'm so thankful to myself that I chose to believe. We did choose to believe, but we see what God did first. By his doing, we're in Christ. This is why he gets all the praise. It's his salvation. He saved us. And therefore, all boasting is excluded because salvation is by God's doing. Verse 30. Did God choose us because we're better or smarter or worthier? No. We learned we're simply chosen according to his sovereign will, which is hidden. We, don't, we can give no other reason. You know, why me? Why not that person? Hidden, we have no answer for that. It's just God's unconditional, perfect, yet hidden will. All we can do is say, well, thank you. Thank you that it was me, that we were given grace, and we were chosen. It's the purpose of this truth revealed in Scripture, truth revealed only for believers, really, to evoke praise that, yeah, you, you did have an experience where you, you chose God. That's true. We all made a, a point in time where we decided and chose, I do believe that's appropriate. That's our human element. But these truths are revealed to tell us that, you know, before that even happened, God actually chose you first and he drew you to himself. He called you and made you alive. And that's why you chose him. The whole point is to evoke this deeper worship, which is our first point. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Arminian who believes that they, they believe in election like we covered, but this conditional election, God 
elects those whom he foresaw would choose him first. So God's election is conditioned on foreseen faith. In, in a way, really, that's a reason for boasting. Why were you elected by God? Well, God foresaw my faith. So that means you were better. You had a better will. You had a stronger will. You were reasonable enough to choose God. That's a reason for boasting. And not only did we find that concept unbiblical, but you can see how that would rob God of this praise. We did not do the choosing. Ultimately, yeah, we have an experience of belief that's necessary, God tells us, but he, he chose first, and it's by his doing that we're in Christ. This is why I let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that boasting, that what is that but worship? What is that but, but praise? And so the application I trust is obvious. You know, be humbled by your election and your salvation. And as you're made low with these realizations that God actually chose you first, he's made bigger, good, that's appropriate. And give him big praise. Give him big worship. Magnify God in your heart. How do you do that? Well, by declarations of praise. So sing louder. And in your heart, through prayer, praise him. By, by faith and trust, expressions of worship. You worship God when you take him at his words. Believe him. And also holy living. Like I said in Ephesians 1 uh, and Romans 12, we're, we're living sacrifices, your spiritual service of worship. These all are ways we worship God. And because he chose us, we should be singing his praise. We will be, as we learned, singing his praise to, to the praise of the glory of his grace for all eternity. And uh, we are meant to do that now. We're meant to start now and not just wait until heaven. So number one, deeper worship. Number two, Fearless evangelism. Fearless evangelism. And you also spend a good amount of time defending against the objection. Where some say, like, you know, if, if all this election stuff is true, if God, if God does the choosing, he knows who's going to get saved, he planned who's going to get saved, then it's pointless to evangelize. God will save whom he wants to save, and so why bother? But we found this is a, a seriously false conclusion to draw from God's sovereignty and salvation. It's true. God will save those whom he chose. Scripture is crystal clear on that. But God is sovereign over the means of that salvation as well as the ends. And he sovereignly chose to use us as the means to bring about the end of calling people to him. The bottom line is scripture clearly teaches we're accountable to evangelize the lost. And unlike Arminians, we don't feel the need to diminish the truth of God's sovereignty to, to justify the truth of man's responsibility. We're happy to, to affirm both truths and just let them be side by side in Scripture as they always are. We affirm God, you know, God is completely sovereign in salvation. Why diminish that? Yet equally affirm, like Scripture does, he, he, he calls us responsible. He holds us accountable to believe and to evangelize. Whether or not you can perfectly piece together how both fit in the mind of God, just how about you just take seriously both truths as revealed in Scripture? And if you're, if you're a, you might call yourself a simple person, leave it at that. Because Scripture affirms both. You trust God's sovereignty to save, but then get to work to share the gospel. And you take seriously the Great Commission. Again, ironically, as we learned, if the Arminian position is correct, evangelism is actually impossible. 
Because if, if, if God is not intervening, if he won't open blind eyes, he's already given everyone the same provenient grace. He's done his part. It's really up to us to convince people. Learning what we did about total depravity, no one's going to get saved. No one will choose on their own. That's the whole point of total depravity and total inability. It's precisely because God is sovereign in salvation that election is actually even possible. And that guarantees, well, some will believe because God's going to open some eyes through the gospel. Our mission, though, it's super simple. Just preach to all. You share the gospel with everybody and just be faithful. That's all you got to do. And we plead with everyone to believe. We invite everyone to believe. We call everyone to believe. And trusting that God will call people to life as he wills. So live evangelistically. You don't have to wait for a missions trip or an evangelism event. Just live out the gospel. And and as you encounter people in situations, just share the good news that's in you with them. Let me read for you 2 Timothy 2.10, where Paul said, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. He, he was willing even to endure hardship and suffering for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain the salvation that they were chosen for. And we too, we should be happy to accept hardship, suffering, persecution, doing the, the work of an evangelist for the sake of the elect. Like Paul told, or rather like God told Paul in Corinth, where he said, I have many people in this city. You just stay here and keep being faithful to preach and God will do his work. And that's what he did. Paul stayed there for a year and a half. Here in 1 Corinthians, look at verse 17. I think you're already there. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And speaking of the cross, verse uh, 27, or 23 rather, he says later, but we preach Christ crucified. This is our call, our evangelism call, just preach the gospel, Christ crucified. Trusting in God's sovereignty and the power of the gospel, we don't have to rely on gimmicks or cleverness. Look, we will contend with people and reason with people and plead and answer objections, answer questions, of course. But ultimately, we're we're trusting in the power of the, the message of Christ who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and rose from the dead to offer us life. We're trusting that God has placed his power in that message, like Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So ultimately, we just need to let, let it out. Just let it fly. This, as God's told you, this is what he uses. This is ordinary means for drawing people to himself. So that's all you got to do is just stay faithful to the message. And to the contrary, historically, it's, it's been the Arminian who has tweaked evangelism into a form of emotional manipulation. Since it's up to us to save people and convince people, the simple preaching of the gospel was deemed way less effective than emotional manipulation. Because it's way easier to get people worked up into this emotional frenzy through music, through tugging on the heartstrings, than to just preach the gospel. That's like way harder and there's less results. Not as many people make decisions. 
People are far more likely to make a decision for Christ if they're kind of you know, worked up a little bit. But we're not interested in decisions. We're interested in new birth, true salvation. And that's a divine work. That's a birth from above. That's God's prerogative, which we can't control. But God says he will bring people to new life through the gospel. So we are simply called to share the gospel, to evangelize. In Mark 4, 26 through 29, I'll read for you this great short parable only found in Mark where Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. This farmer casting seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Just say, we've looked at that before. A great little parable where... Uh, so much relating to our role, uh, Christ's role, our role. You, you just, you're, you're the farmer. You just be faithful to sow the seed. And we sow the seed indiscriminately. We actually have no control over the soil and the conditions, the sunlight. We just sow seed on the field indiscriminately. And then what do we do? Go to bed. <laughs> just go to sleep. Meaning, you just, you, just keep, you just keep going. We have no control after that. We can't make anybody believe. We have no power to convince a single person. But if it's going to grow, it's going to grow by itself, like it said, obviously through God's power. He's in charge of that. You just be faithful to do what? Sow seed. Because one thing is true. If you don't sow the seed, nothing's going to grow. Now, like we talked about, God, God will use other means. If you're unfaithful, he's always faithful. He, he will get it done. But what's the point? You're responsible. God has given you responsibility to be the farmer, to sow the seed. So what's your application? Well, evangelize. You, you go out, you sow the seed, you be faithful to do so. We are faithfulness-driven, not results-driven. It actually takes a, a huge burden off in that sense, but it shouldn't take your passion off or your boldness off. And so you fervently, confidently, uh, energetically evangelize. Now, if you're going to do that, it's going to involve prayer. So this leads us to number three, powerful prayer. Let's keep moving here. Number three, powerful prayer. This is a simple one, but also hopefully obvious application. Given that the most significant part of a person's salvation is out of our hands, namely their new birth, the only thing we can do for them after sharing the gospel is is pray. I mean, of course, we follow up, we keep talking, we reinforce, but we, we, we're trusting God to cause that seed to sprout, and for that we pray. Just like Paul, he earnestly prayed for the salvation of his hardened brethren, the Jews. So we too should earnestly pray for the salvation of the lost. We always pray that God's will be done, of course, but just as God's sovereignty doesn't invalidate our evangelism, and our responsibility to evangelize, so also God's sovereignty doesn't invalidate our prayer and our responsibility to prayer. We actually studied that a while ago as as well. Our prayers are reflections of our trust and faith in God. So your job here again is just very simple. You just pray. Pray fervently for your lost loved ones, letting your requests be made known to God, putting them in God's hands. You're going to trust his perfect plan. You're going to rest in his sovereignty, but you're fervently praying. 
just like you fervently evangelize. You can't control the results, but pray without ceasing. God works through means, right? He works through means. He's sovereign over the means and the ends. And his, his determined means for bringing this about is us. He's chosen to use us to pray for people and to evangelize, to be faithful. So like evangelism, uh, be faithful to pray and, uh, and, and make it powerful prayer at that. You know, at the end of the day, what's humorous to, humorous to me is that most people, whether they believe in this doctrines of grace stuff or not, they pray like Calvinists. Pretty much everybody prays like a Calvinist. I find it ironic. Most Arminians, they, they pray super Calvinistic prayers. They don't know it, but they do. If you ever hear an Arminian praying for the salvation of their love and Lord, please, saved my, please save my mom. Open her eyes. Show her the truth. Draw her to yourself. We, yeah, great. We pray that all the time. Realize, though, according to their theology on paper, God can't do that. He literally cannot do that. God can't intervene. He's tied his own hands. He, it's by his choice, but he has tied his own hands. And God refuses to intervene. He, people must believe on their own, of their own free will, unaided, unassisted. God has highest regard for our free will. And he's promised he, he won't touch it. So you've got to believe on your own, of your own unassisted free will. God's done his part. He gave everybody equally prevenient grace. So everyone's got that grace. Jesus died equally for all, so they've got atonement. And so now it's just, it's up to people. They have to choose to believe. God will not convince anyone supernaturally or alter their will. That's their theology on paper. So it's actually totally pointless to pray that God would save someone. Like, he's, he's already done his part. He's done. You know, Jesus died. They've got prevenient grace. That's it. He's not going to do anything more, so it's no longer useful to pray. Rather, you just need to do a better job to convince that person. It's, it's really up to you. That being said, I've not, never met an Arminian who actually prays consistently. They all pray like we do. They pray, Lord, save my friend. Open their eyes. Convince them. Draw them. And I think it just betrays this inherent recognition of Scripture that, you know, God, he really is truly sovereign and supreme. And he has the power to make the unwilling willing. And that's actually the only way anyone gets saved. And it's just, to me, a little bit ironic and humorous that everybody prays, essentially, that I've met like a Calvinist. But for you, for you and I, you can pray this prayer with, with meaning, with confidence, with hope. Because your, your prayer should reflect a God whom you know is big, whom you know is in control. So pray with confidence, with comfort, with power to a big God to save. Number four, true holiness. A fourth application of the truths of election and predestination. It should produce, it should lead to true holiness. We'll be brief here. Scripture often connects the dots between our salvation and our right living. We're not saved by being holy. We're saved by faith. But when you are saved, you will be holy. It should result in the fruit of holiness. The new birth does. You guys get that, I trust. But there's one verse in particular that connects election to holy living. It's usually, you know, our calling and salvation in general. But Colossians 3.12 connects it to God's choice. I'll just read it for you. Where he says, as those, he says, so as those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, 
put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he goes on after that more and more. And he, he calls on us, you know, as those chosen by God, we should be kind and humble and patient and so on and so forth. We should live accordingly. You can picture us like orphans. We're on the street. We're lost. But God, the king, passes by. And he calls us to himself and to his kingdom. And why? Why us? We have, we have no answer. Just by his goodwill, his compassion. He, he takes us with us into the kingdom, into his, his realm. And he adopts us. He makes us sons and daughters of the king. That should produce thanksgiving, like we talked about. It should also produce new behavior. He, he's taken off our rags, given us royal clothes. We, we're no longer living in the streets and in the mud, but in his household. And so we should live accordingly, not as if to repay. We can't repay, but just he, he calls us to live like him, to share in his holiness. This is how we honor the king who saved us and reflect his glory and light to the world. And so this is what we should do, right living, holy living. God calls us to share his holiness. And so as we reflect on our adoption, which started from eternity past in the sense that God set us apart. He, he, he chose us from eternity past to be those adopted sons and daughters. That should drive us and compel us through the Spirit to, to live like it, to, to follow Christ, to practice what you preach and, and the whole nine yards. God's, knowing God's choosing of you, you should pursue holiness and follow the King. We have a couple more to go here, so let's, let's get through these. Number five, gracious love. A gracious love. We already mentioned there's no boasting before God. Because everything we have, we've received as a free gift. And God chose us. So we can't boast before him. For the same reason, we can't boast before others. Meaning we can't boast over others. We can in no way regard ourselves as better than anyone else, meaning unbelievers, because we're not. I mean, we look at those, they're still lost in their sins, and we're no better. We're no different other than we've been called, chosen, and saved, and forgiven. But we, we once were like them, and apart from God's grace, we would be just like them still. There's, there's zero superiority complex here because it's all by grace. And that, in turn, should produce what toward the loss? Compassion. A real, a genuine compassion, knowing that 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 was just me, B.C., before Christ. And in in turn, that should result in us treating the lost with a, a gracious love. You could put it, a gracious love. With other believers, and even with the lost, a spirit of grace, kindness, gentleness, and forgiveness should pervade our lives. Kind of like we just read in Colossians 3. But we've received so much grace. And it was all unconditional. God simply chose us by his favor. He forgave us unconditionally. Right? This is unconditional election. Not conditional election. So how, how do you think we should therefore love others. Forgive others. Treat others. The same kind of unconditional love and forgiveness. And scripture teaches that. For the sake of time, we're almost out. So I'll leave Matthew 18 to yourself. That great parable of 
the debtor who was forgiven this like infinite debt, just the, the, the master that forgave him of it all. But then he in turn goes and tries to exact out of a fellow of his a tiny debt, unwilling to forgive and show grace. And Christ harshly condemns those. We've been forgiven of so much. How can you therefore not treat others with grace and forgiveness at times, uh, overlooking their sins and just forgiving like God has forgiven us. We're not their judge. But listen to 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And we'll read this one. This is a verse we picked on a lot because it's such a clear verse of God's sovereignty and salvation. So let me read it again and make a point. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Remember, all the, the key truths we've learned from this verse, we, we are trusting God to do what? To grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, to to those who are lost. God must do this for faith and repentance. God must grant it. Our our faith and repentance even must be granted by God that we would see the light. And so we trust God to do this, that people will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Remember, we learned that you won't find free will per se in Scripture, We have a will, and we are free to do what we're able to do, but the better term is bound will. Our will is bound in Scripture by what? By sin and and Satan. And this verse is so clear and explicit. Having been held captive by him to do his will. That's all of us before Christ. So such a verse on God's sovereign intervention to open people's eyes, to set captives free, that's what he does. But don't, don't ignore, though, the... The commands here, which is what? Well, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, dot, 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 and he goes on with the rest. The whole point is, why should we be gentle and gracious and kind and patient with the lost? Because... We know, one. well, first, we were once like them. Two, we know they don't know better. They, they don't know better. They're, they're enslaved. They're still blind. Like we once were blind. You should know what that is like. They're still blind. They're still deaf. They still can't see and understand. Their hearts are darkened. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Their will is not free but held captive by, by Satan. They just don't know better. This Again, this evokes compassion and It calls for these responses. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, gentle, a gracious love. This is how God calls us. This is how God treats us, by the way, and how God calls us to treat others. And in this, we reflect his love. And God often uses such bondservants to be the ones who, through his sovereignty, draw people like this to the truth. So take this seriously, a gracious love with the lost. And, of course, with believers as well. 
Well, let's finish up with number six here, a steadfast confidence, a final application to all that we've learned about election and predestination. Steadfast confidence. This may be the most direct application in Scripture. In other words, whenever the truths of election show up in the Bible, I think most often they're directly tied to to this, to the encouragement of believers. Election and predestination in the Bible, they're never really presented to unbelievers. You know, those who, who reject God, they have no category, no, no concept of this stuff. Rather, these truths, they always show up in the context of being presented to those who already believe for the sake of their encouragement. We've looked at many reasons, five other applications, but this last one is often presented as as the most direct reason why these truths are brought up in Scripture for the sake of their encouragement, especially those who are suffering. You'll find in many contexts where Paul and others talk about the realities of election to encourage those who are suffering. It's meant to give them assurance and confidence that the same God who chose them before the foundation of the world, he's still holding on to them, and he won't let go. That's like one of the big points, that you might be going through a lot and suffering, you're in the valley, you can't see, you don't, you don't feel God's love, you might say, but understand God chose you from eternity past. He's not going to let go now. I mean, from eternity past, he chose you and and called you in the present. He's going to hold on to you. This is for your encouragement. So you can think of John 10. I'll read for you. 25 through 29. You remember this, the good shepherd. Jesus said to the, the crowd, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, big verse, like we studied, the Father gave the sheep to the Son. He says, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. True sheep will believe. These sheep are given to the Son, by the Father. They're the Son's inheritance, and no one can snatch them away from the Son or the Father. We're secured by the life, the death, the sovereignty of God. That This is meant to give us ultimate encouragement and assurance and comfort and hope. You know, much later in the study, we'll, we will get to the perseverance of the saints, which is tied to the preservation of the saints. Stemming from God's election, we are assured the same God who chose us in eternity past, he's not going to just casually let us go. It defeats his entire plan of redemption. Rather, God will preserve us to the end. That's his part. But bringing in responsibility, right? He calls us to, at the same time, persevere. He preserves, we persevere. And so we see a great application here. We're comforted in the knowledge that, that God chose you, he won't let you go. And that knowledge is meant to give you confidence to press on, to keep believing, to not let go of him, to not let go of your faith. A couple more here. Second Thessalonians, I'll read 2, 13 through 15. 
where he says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through, through sanctification by spirit and faith in the truth. He says, It was this, it was for this, he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. You see what he says? He thanks God, like we thank God that God called you. He chose you from the beginning for salvation. Then he called you. Thank God for this. So then, because in light of this, what? Stand firm. Those dots are clear. We're chosen from the beginning, assured of God's love. So, so what? Well, stand firm. Keep going. Even if it's hard, you're suffering, life is hard, whatever it is, whatever trial, he's still with you. Be convinced of his love. It's an electing love. Keep going. When we finish here, Romans 8. Let's turn there. I mean, you got to finish here. And I put it last on purpose. It's, it's really one of the greatest chapters and passages we go to for these great truths of, of election. You understand Paul's pastoral heart in these truths as he wraps up this major section in Romans is to encourage and comfort believers, give them confidence and boldness and hope in God's sovereign election. And so, you know, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then the golden chain, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's, what, elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see what he's saying? I mean, look what, look what God has done for us. Not because of us. It's for his own glory, but what he has done for us in calling us, choosing us, drawing us to Christ, sending Christ to die for us, being elect, being justified, we're, we're saved. We're not guilty. We're right with God. Nothing can ever now separate that or change that. And so he says, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Yes, he loved us. He chose us. He called us. So therefore we conquer. Lastly, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have here one of the, the greatest passages on God's election. And see the point, the pastoral heart. This is God's love, his electing love. 
This is an electing love, a love that chooses, a love that saves. And because of that, we have the ultimate encouragement and confidence and hope and trust that we're, we're good now. I mean, if you're in Christ, hey, things may not always be peachy and, and good in your life, but, but it's well with our soul. Nothing can separate us from that love. Our eternal inheritance is secured. We will be glorified. You've been justified. You will be glorified. So live in that confidence and therefore stand firm. You just keep going. You keep running. You keep pressing on. You hold on to him. Assured he's not going to let you go. I mean, went, all, went through all this trouble to elect you and, and save you with Christ. Not like he's going to let you go now. Remember, he's the creator God, all powerful. So you just keep going. So here you have it, six ways to apply the truths of election. I trust and hope now you'll take these applications to heart, live them out in your own lives. Now implement, flesh them out in your own lives. And overall, I I trust we will never fail to reflect on on everything we learn. We're going to learn more, a lot more of just doctrine and theology coming. But may we always learn and, and then apply that we would be doers, of the word and not merely hearers only. All right, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you've given us this this gift of your word that we might know you, know your person, know your character, your attributes, and, and give you glory. That we might also know what you have done in creation. The God of all creation makes you worthy of praise, and we exalt you as Lord of heaven and earth. It also you revealed this plan, this provision of salvation in your son Christ. Your Lord, your, your greatest work. And as we learn in your word of this work, which includes election, your, your choosing of, of sinners to yourself, we give you praise for this as well. As we learn of these truths, may we exalt and worship and then live it out in all the ways we learned tonight. May this be true of, of all that we continue to learn that we always look for the ways that this should impact our lives. You, you reveal these truths for our knowledge and edification, but it can't just live in our head. It has to travel down to our hearts and thereafter to our hands and feet that we would really live this out. So convict us and, and propel us forward from what we've learned that you might get even more glory from us as we are doers of your word and not hearers only. To your glory, we pray. Amen.